Hello, welcome back to the Veterans Lounge Podcast. I am your host, Miguel Mata. And first things first, let me apologize for not putting out an episode in so long. But as it turns out, this teacher life does take up quite a bit of your time and juggling um, first year teaching and this podcast has turned out to be a little bit more work than I initially expected. But the podcast still exists because helping veterans in their transitions, telling their stories is an important piece of work and that's something that I believe in. And I'm just going to, we're going to keep on, we're going to keep on trucking. We're going to keep on trying to do this. That being said, today's episode, my guest is a gentleman by the name of Robert Simmons, Army veteran uh, who did a few years back in the 80s. And his story is one that I think will resonate with quite a few veterans, even though it might sound a little far-fetched at first. I am not a journalist by any means of the word, not a journalist by any means of the word. And when Mr. Simmons approached me and asked me to share his story on the podcast, uh, admittedly, I was a little reluctant because when I heard the details, I was like, this isn't, this really isn't my, um, my forte here. This isn't something that, that I can, I, I don't think I feel qualified to do. But he hadn't been getting a lot of support. And that is something that really kind of spoke to me because unfortunately, um, there are a lot of veterans who exist in this country who have, who experience problems and challenges and need help and their needs are not being met, whether it be because, you know, um, the system that exists to help them, it can't, it won't. Uh, for whatever reason and Mr. Simmons is kind of just is, he's kind of fighting that battle right now I leave it up to you the listener or the viewer to determine whether or not you believe any of the details that he shares uh, one reason that I'm sharing it like I said is because you know veterans need to be heard veterans need to be heard and I don't think enough of them are being heard and in the in, in Mr. Simmons' case I believe where there is smoke there is fire so, um, even though the details of his story might sound a little far-fetched and hard to believe, I believe there's something there that needs to be heard. So, all that being said, and without further ado, Mr. Robert Simmons, Army Veteran. Hello, welcome back to the Veterans Lounge Podcast. I am your host, Miguel Mata, once again. And today we're taking a uh, telephone call. This is one of the few telephone interviews that I've done um, on on any podcast format. But luckily, I have another outstanding individual who's willing to share their story, another military veteran willing to share their story, uh, Mr. Robert Simmons. Say hello, Robert. Hello, everybody. I'm Robert Simmons. I'm a veteran on disability from Michigan. Nice to meet you, Robert. Thanks a lot for being on on the podcast. Thank you. Nice meeting you too. So where are you at, Robert? I'm in Swartz Creek, Michigan. Is that where you're from originally? Nope. I'm originally from uh, <laughs> White Lake, Michigan. I only moved and ended up uh, 50 miles away from where I uh, was raised. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. What's uh, what's Michigan like now? Right, right about now. I know where I'm at in South Carolina. It is hot and humid. What's Michigan like? Oh, it's uh, hotter than we're normally used to, and uh, the humidity's in the tropic level. Wow. Is it is it usually pretty humid up there? I mean, you got the Great Lakes up there. I'd imagine there'd be some humidity, yeah. It's some humidity, but I mean, the last couple of years it's really been worse, and I got a feeling we're going to get hammered uh, with snow this year. That's pretty likely. I tell you what, I know a little bit about that snow up there. Uh, not as much as you, of course, being originally from that area. But I spent I spent quite a few years in, in North Dakota with North Dakota winters. And that oh yeah, that snow up there's no joke. No, no. But I thought I had it uh, rough here in Michigan until I uh, served up in Fort Drum, New York, and uh, that's ten times worse than Michigan. Oh, for real! Wow. Well, like I said, I really appreciate you being on the podcast, Robert. And you know what? The, the way I like to uh, start this, these things off is I I, I like to to learn a little bit about, you know, our the veterans that I that I talk to and um if I remember right, you were in the army, yeah? Correct. So when when did you join? What was your reason for joining? What's the story behind your your joining the service if you don't mind me asking? My dad was an Air Force veteran and he ended up uh getting out when the family just got too big. <laughs> oh wow. So uh, I grew up under a little bit of military control, but I mean uh, the respect was there. For, thought it was my uh, right and honor to serve the country. So you come from a from a family of veterans, then? Uh, my dad was a veteran. Uh, my grandfather, he was actually a mason. Oh, okay. Wow, interesting. That's pretty cool. But you you joined the service because you felt it was your you felt it was your duty to serve. Yeah, and uh, I didn't think it was a bad idea to go be twenty years or nineteen when I went in, and you know retire at the age of thirty nine. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's not a it's not a bad deal. I can tell you that. I can tell you that, and I, I'll be honest with you. And look, this is this is just my experience talking. Um, most of the people that I came across when I was in the service, doing their duty, quote-unquote, wasn't really the driving force behind their joining the service. Most folks were trying to make it me, you know? <laughs> yep. So it's it's really kind of a little, it's really kind of refreshing to meet someone who, who um, joined because it, you know, you felt like it was, you know, you felt like it was your, your duty to do so. You wanted to serve your country, like, legitimately. Oh, yeah. I watched a lot of my dad's old videos of, like, 8 millimeter. He shot out of the aircraft he was in and stuff like that growing up. And it, I wasn't able to get into the Air Force. They wanted me to play football, and I wanted to learn a trade, so I went to the Army. That was the deciding factor behind your joining the Army over the Air Force? Correct. Oh, interesting. So what what year did you join the army? Uh, I went in in January of eighty seven. That's a little bit ago. <laughs> it's a little bit hey, ago. Yep, 
Hey, I uh, graduated in 86, but uh, when I graduated, I had a bench press of 429, and uh, I came out of high school pretty much a beast. It was, but I'm, I'm sure it seems like yesterday when you when you signed up. Oh yeah. What was your uh, What was your army experience like? What'd you think? I loved every minute of it until I got injured. <laughs> I remember you saying that earlier. You suffered the kind of injury that ended ended your career, correct? Correct. What kind of What kind of um, well, first of all, what did you do while you were in the service, and then what was the injury that you sustained? I was uh, the 31 Victor-10, a radio repair and mechanic, and uh, I was working in a rat rig and sliding out a 210-pound radio at the time through my legs, and a guy dropped his other end, and I woke up in a hospital a few days later. Holy Moses. What did they tell you happened? I mean, the guy dropped, the guy dropped his end. Was it, was it like a, I, I, I'm, I'm having trouble visualizing this, this, uh, what, you know, what the situation was. It's like, uh, trying to hike a 210 pound football through your legs. So and when somebody you? drops their end, you sort of go forward really hard. Yeah. And were you, were you like, Suspend? I'm uh, not suspended, but were you up in the were you up in the air at all? Like, was this was this thing pretty high up off the ground? It, no, it's, it's basically it used to be like a little uh, truck with a camper oh. on in the back of radios. Interesting. Wow. So you're taking out this piece of equipment, 200 plus pound piece of equipment, through your legs. And, uh, well, yeah, because it's a, it used to be like just the aisleway getting in between all the radios. Right. And you had to slide the radio out of the cradle to get it out. And when I slid out of the cradle, he dropped his end and I woke up later on. <laughs> so it pinched my nerves and just dropped me right out, blacked me out. Wow. So this is a back injury you sustained? Back and hip injury. Wow. My the the neck injury from hitting the cradle and bouncing off that sort of has healed itself, but everything else I still deal with. Wow. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. How long How long were you in? I mean, like, how much time did you put hey, in? Hey, I only was in a year and three months, and it it sort of killed me. Yeah, because I wanted to retire, like I said, from the service. Oh, man. Man, I'm sorry, dude. That is... The the service wasn't willing to rehabilitate you at all? I mean, I'm curious. How did that whole thing play out? I could have I got sent to uh, Walter Reed and then uh, had surgery at the age of 20, but the one doctor uh, told me, if I did that, I would probably end up having other surgeries at the age of 40, at the age of 50, you know, as I generated an age, it would be worse if I had the surgery at that time. So they put me on permanent profile to where they weren't going to allow me to re-enlist anyway. So right. they offered me a medical discharge, and I went home. Wow. 
and what were you thinking? What were you feeling, buddy? Oh, fighting depression for a while, you know, because you, you work most of your life and want something, and then when that's taken away because somebody didn't do their job, not your own, you know, own actions put you in that position, it's sort of a bummer. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Did, uh, just, uh, just, you know, curious, the, the person that was on that job with you, did he say anything to you at all? Like, did he have a conversation? I didn't even, I didn't even see him in the, uh, the hospital when they got out of the field. I didn't even see him before I got discharged. I think he was avoiding me like the plague because he felt so bad. Yeah. And you never spoke to him ever again? I've never seen him face to face again. Wow, man. So, you got to separate. Now you're out of the service. You yeah, went over an episode of, of dealing with depression. How long did that last, or, or are you still dealing with it? Oh, every now and then it will still, uh, you know, show its ugly head when things aren't going my way. You know, it brings back a lot of memories. Did you happen to seek out any, any professional help for that, or is that something that you've just kind of been dealing with on your own? Um, uh, I went to, uh, the VA for assistance and they didn't like a few of the things I was talking about. And we had discussed that before, but, uh, and they wanted to lock me up for 72 hours, calling me delusional and crazy. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me back up just a little bit. Okay. So you're dealing with depression. You yep. reached out to the VA for help? Correct. And then they wanted to lock, they wanted to lock you away for a period of time? Because they thought... Put me in the, for a 72 hour hold and drug me as much as they could, I guess. I don't know. Was it because you had suicidal ideations or something like that? Did they, did they make the, was the claim that it was for your own good or something like that? Why, I'm kind of curious. What do you believe there? The they, they were trying to get my girlfriend at the time to say that she was afraid of me, and she wouldn't say that she was afraid of me. She was said that she was afraid for me, um, and they, they wanted to put me into a 72-hour hold in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But when they put me in the locked room I was in in the ER, Literally, the door fell off the hinge. Uh, wow! Uh, <laughs> it seems like it seems like we're missing a, a quite a few details here. <laughs> seems like we're missing quite a few details. Did they? Did you reach out to the VA for help, or did you? Did something happen where the VA had to get involved? Oh, no, I reached out to the VA for help. This was after about four different counseling uh, sessions, and they wanted me to go down and speak with the counselors in, in Ann Arbor. So I drove from Flint, where I was seeing the counselors, 
And it, while I was driving, uh, they were tr on the phone with my girlfriend, who had no legal right, no nothing, but they were trying to get her to say that she was scared of me. Why do you why why do you suppose that was what what was the because if they if your girlfriend or your wife or spouse or anybody says that they're scared of you they have the legal right to hold you for seventy two hours why do you suppose they they felt so compelled to hold you you know to put you away for 72 hours. Why do you believe that? It was when I uh, got out of the service and I was working, probably trying to work for the first 10 years of being out of the service or more. Um, I think I was put on full disability in 2008. Okay. Um, but I got out in 88 and I had worked those years. And it was one of the years that I worked, I lived in the UP up in Brimley. And I worked for a company called Royal Electric. And we were remodeling the courthouse annex up there. And uh, when remodeling the courthouse annex, I was doing tear out. So I was pulling wires and pulling everything. And the floor was a mess. There was uh, insulation all over the place. And I ended up picking up a container by accident with all my wire nuts and all my other containers. I took it home, and over the weekend, I had to do some work around the house, got into my tools, and noticed I had a container, and th there was three vials of cyanide in it. How did you know that it was cyanide? Th it was labeled. It was labeled? I never even opened the container. It was labeled. Did yeah. it have, was it an official label or was it, was it like a black and white label, you know, like cyanide? No, it was the old black and white label and partially faded. Okay. Okay. So, uh, just to, so that I got the details correct, you do it, you were doing, I guess, construction on a, on a courthouse annex. And you're saying this container was among the other containers that were. It got it, mixed in with my containers. How do you suppose it mixed in? Did you put your did you put your containers in in a space where that container just so happened to be? Is that what you're saying? It, the containers were all over the floor. I was just kicking them around, shoving them around with my ladder as I was going work down the uh, line. Okay, so was this an old rundown building? Something that hadn't been used in a while. Um, it, that section of it was actually, they said it, uh, the cyanide came from the dental apartment. I had to sign a, a notarized form at my employer the very next Monday stating if I uh, tried to sue uh, Chippewa County or the Chippewa County Courthouse because of the cyanide, um, I would be put in jail for stealing off of their property. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Hold on. But the doctor that turned in the cyanide for me, um, two weeks later, his house was sold. His He left his fiance, and he got a job at the Cleveland Clinic. So, hold on just a minute. Hold on. Um, you find the cyanide. You find the cyanide among your own containers at home, right? 
Correct. What did you What did you do with the cyanide when you found it? Hey, I put it up into my garage, up onto the top shelf, away from my tools, and as far as away from my family as I could have it. Um, you know, and then uh, a couple days later, I contacted Doctor Tom Ham. He came up into my driveway. He uh, took possession of it. He called the uh, Department of Deeds. Homeland Security, because that's who I guess they called through the VA doctors, because he was my VA doctor at the time. Why did you call him? I didn't know who to get rid of anything like that from. Oh, okay. So he, he was like, you know, he, he was like I, got the, I got the cyanide. I don't know what to do with it. You called your doctor instead of calling your yeah. employer first? Just I'm just I'm well, trying my, to understand the logic. My employer, uh, they weren't available over the weekend. Dr. Tom Ham was. Okay. All right. So I, your doctor I, I came to mind. Your doctor I was came literally to... working on his house, the w wiring it on the side. He was actually coming there to pay me money. <laughs> oh, I see. So this was a regular visit? This was an expected visit? You didn't call him specifically for the cyanide. You were just expecting no. him because you had done some work for him. Correct. Okay, so while he was there paying you for the I, work that you had done for him. Yep, and I asked him, uh, you know, how do I get rid of this? And he got on the phone with DHS right then and there. Wow. And then what happened? I talked to them on the phone, and he drove the cyanide to uh, War Memorial Hospital up in Sault Ste. Marie in like I said, two days or two weeks later, his house was sold. That wasn't even finished wiring. Um, and he had a job in, at the Cleveland Clinic, and he walked away from his fiance. I, I, I'm I'm kind of curious why that detail is relevant. Why Why are you sharing that? Because uh, there is a witness up there that knows. I know her name. You know, and different things. Uh, that knows that the cyanide actually happened. Because Why part of my, what part the of my medical between the cyanide and his moving? Oh, uh, he was working underneath another doctor. He didn't even have his own practice or whatever going on the uh, east side. He was in Kinslow Outreach Clinic. Working underneath another doctor, Dr. Uh, Stallman, out of Iron Mountain, and to go from not being a full doctor at your center to being a doctor at Cleveland Clinic after the cyanide was turned in is sort of a no-brainer to me. I'm I'm having personally I'm having difficult making the connection. So can you be a little bit more specific as to what the connection is? He got paid off and was ba uh, basically uh, got a six figure or more job at the Cleveland Clinic for turning in the cyanide. Why do you think he got paid off for turning in the cyanide? Because uh, there was no, he w had no plans of even leaving the uh, Eastern UP.
He was uh, just up there, and like I said, he was engaged, going to be married, and settling down. He was building a new house. You know, I, who, who paid him off? Who do you believe paid him off for turning in the cyanide? Either the, DA, either the DHS or uh, the, the Veterans Administration. Because they're trying to cover up what exactly? That the cyanide was even found. Ah, okay. And what, if the cyanide was in this old courthouse, right? You're right. Saying, you, are you, are you, is your claim that the, the department, department, department of Homeland Security or the VA was trying to cover up that Cyanide was found, period, in the public? Correct. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Tom Hanf put in personal notes that I was delusional about cyanide. That's why my uh, therapist wanted me to do a 72-hour lockdown, because he falsified medical records and benefited from it all. Oh, okay. I think I see. I think I see the connection now. So, so let me... Let me just see if I understand the logic or, or what, what exactly you, you believe happened. So you find this cyanide as part of this construction job. Your doctor gets involved just by chance, right? Just by chance. And, right. and, um, you give it to him because, I mean, he's a doctor. He should know what to do with that stuff, right? Correct. Um, he turns it into whoever he turns it into, Department of Homeland Security. Yep. War Memorial Hospital up in Susie and Berea is where it was taken. I don't know where it went from there. <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't so, even know if they looked for any more. <laughs> he takes it to War Memorial Hospital. And what you believe happened is in order to cover up the fact that any cyanide was found in the public, he was paid a sum of money, which he was able to move with and find another job with and at the same time he falsified med your medical records claiming that you were delusional about something about cyanide and then when you reached out just to bring it all the way back where, where we got started from when you reached out to the VA to help you with your depression I'm guessing they found this these falsified documents. I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna say supposed because I you know I don't know the the, the truth here. Right. Um. They found these supposed your the supposed falsified medical records you're claiming exist. Um. And they put together that you were delusional. That's how they came up with this this delusional. Um. This di yeah this uh, diagnosis of delusion. Correct. So they and, and that's why uh, Anna, my therapist in Flint, she wanted to do a 72-hour lockdown. So she sent you to another hospital, and on the way, they were trying to build a case against you. Yes. But my girlfriend said she wasn't scared of me. She was scared for me. Right. But I stayed in the locked room in Ann Arbor 
for over two and a half hours, even after the door fell off. Um, and it, I never even had a therapist talk to me. They were on the phone talking to my girlfriend, trying to get her to say that she was scared of me. For two and a half hours, I never seen anybody, but yet I went down there as an emergency. And this was the emergency room in the VA hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Correct. So you're in the hospital. Did you spend the whole 72 hours in the hospital? No, uh, I ended up walking out because uh, they wanted to lock me up for 72 hours. But uh, I left because I drove myself there under their request. And you had no idea that their intent was to lock you up? No. Uh, no. I found that out at the end when they finally came and talked to me because their tethers that they say that they put on your wrist and that uh, to keep track of you in the hospital, I had one of those on and I ripped it off. When I finally ripped that tether off is when the therapist finally came to talk to me, but I had yet been in there for, like I said, two and a half hours, and I had watched these two women uh, of therapists talk to almost everyone else in that ER except for me. Let me ask you, if you don't mind me asking, uh, outside of this, this, supposed delusion diagnosis and you know you're an apparent you know you're you're um um you know you're pretty open about having dealt with and 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 currently even still you know dealing with depression being someone who's depressed do you have a history of mental health issues no no, I never really had a, any sort of history until after being in the service. Hmm. Interesting. And, and that's uh, them putting in their delusional. And you know that that they were trying to build a case against you because I'm guessing your girl, girlfriend told you that they were they had called her. Oh yeah, they they called her when I was driving down there and said that I was all I raved on the phone and this and that, and they never called me. When I was driving down there, they were lying to her point blank to try to get her to say that she was afraid of me. Hmm. What? What? Just out of curiosity, what year was that? Um, five years ago. Now, uh, for the for the therapist. Five years ago, for the incident where they wanted to hold you for seventy-two hours by force or make a case against you. Correct. That was five years ago? Yeah, for being delusional. <laughs> five years ago would put us at 2016. 2016 is... Yep, and I turned on it in the cyanide around 2010, I think it was. Uh, I I was kind of thinking about like the the time frame here, the timeline. There's, mm-hmm. about, there's about 20 years between the time that you got out of the service till this this uh, incident with the cyanide. There's about Correct. 20 years. What did you do in that 20 years? What 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 had you done? 
I was working and trying to support my family in Brimley, Michigan, up there. Yeah. No run-ins with the law and or anything like that that time? Nope. Not a thing. Well, I'll tell you what. You've got a... You definitely got a fascinating story. Well, the thing is, is I I can give names for people to call that would, uh, you know, reaffirm the story. Yeah, that can confirm all your all your allegations there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Wendy Jamros was Doctor Tom Ham's uh, fiance at the time that it happened. And she's a nurse, was, was a nurse practitioner at Bay Mills' uh, medical center up in the UP, and I don't know if she's still there or not. I really wish I would have turned it in through her. Yeah. She's a lot better person than uh, my VA doctor's event. And what was your doctor one more time? My doctor's name was Dr. Dr. Thomas R. Hamm. And he worked on underneath Dr. Timothy Stallman from Iron Mountain. Let me ask you this, since it came up. Was there a case made against you? Did you have to go to court for... No, only only thing I signed was that job, or the paperwork to saying that the uh, city of Sault Ste. Marie would put me in jail for stealing off their property if I ever went to sue about the cyanide. Okay. Hey, that's somewhere in city records. You know, they wouldn't even give me a copy of it. They have treated me like garbage for doing the right thing for uh, possibly saving millions of lives. Let me ask you this. the cause you brought, Because you brought it up, there was some at some point the claim was made that you were trying to kill your family with the cyanide. Yep, that was uh in the interrogatories of my divorce. Okay. I see. Okay. You were you know, you were never charged for No. Or, yeah. No, I was never charged, no police involvement with the cyanide. It went from my driveway to War Memorial Hospital in the Sault Ste. Marie. You know, my issue with turning in was Dr. Tom Hamp and the falsifying of medical records and the abuse that I've suffered since then. I guess that your trust in the VA where you, near you is gone. You won't, you I, I have talked to other veterans that have literally left the state of Michigan because of the medical service that we get. Probably a lot of them out there. If you put a feeler out, you'd probably get thousands of people responding. They say on average right now there's a one to two veterans moving out of Michigan daily. Because of the care that they're getting. Yep. Medical care. Yep. Yeah, but some guys say they get awesome care, but they don't have as many issues as some of the others. Yeah. You know, I've seen guys in Ann Arbor crying in their wheelchair because they're having, we're having to fight for their benefits to get help when they were wheelchair bound. Yeah. 
Robert, I appreciate you being on the podcast today and sharing so much of your story. I am going to try and piece together uh, something that does your story justice. We're going to put that it out there. That would be great, sir. I will put it out there, and then we will see what happens. What is the message, Robert? What's the message that you want to get out? I want to get out the story and the message of how veterans are actually being treated, not what you see in the media to where, oh, we're all coddled and this and that. No, we're not. We are medically abused. We are sometimes even physically abused. It's the treatment and medical treatment that we receive is a joke, especially even for our um, depressed, our therapists that we're supposed to go to. They don't take in the veteran story or actually listen. They try to tell you what happened and try to tell you what you can talk about. You know, I, that's not getting the individual story or anything out to help them that they have going on their, in their mind. Right. They try to tell you what's wrong with you. Yes, exactly. You know, and if you go in there and you complain about, say, you have an injured knee and, oh, heaven forbid, your blood came up a little high on its A1C, you better be slammed with freaking diabetes medicine and everything else. Who cares if you had a bag of freaking candy within the last month? Yeah. You know, or they drank some alcohol that raised your blood sugar, anything. They don't actually look at the root problem. They try to tell you what your problem is. Right. And everybody's problem is different, and they try to lump us all into, we're all in uniform, and we should all act the same way, same everything, still. No. Everybody's their own individual. Some medicines work for some people, some don't. Yeah. You know, and if you don't treat the individual, you're not getting treatment. I can't imagine the level of frustration that you must be dealing with on a daily basis, even. Um, and I, I can't at this at this point from where I am, all I can do is wish you luck, buddy. So, uh, Robert, I really appreciate you spending some time with me, and I really appreciate you sharing your story. Um, I'm going to try to do something that does your story justice. I'm going to try to put. Uh, put together an episode that does your story justice but more than anything I appreciate you being on the podcast oh it's been my pleasure sir um so yeah this has been the Veterans Lounge podcast um your host once again Miguel Mata my my guest today has been Robert Simmons and he's had he's he's shared with us a pretty fantastic story and I think I think a story that that uh, is really relevant in, in today's veteran experience, especially when it involves the uh, veteran affairs, right? The hospital ver veteran affairs. I will, we, we'll do the best that we can, Robert. We'll get your story out, okay? Okay, thank you, sir. You, you have a great evening. I'd like to thank Robert Simmons for taking the time to reach out to the Veterans Lounge podcast and sharing his story with us. Um, like I said, the details are are a little 
can be a little bit tough to digest, but there, I believe there's something there that needs to be heard, which is he's someone who needs help. He's someone who needs help, whether it be, um, you know, what kind of help is, is I'm, I'm not, I can't say, I can't say, but I know that he needs help. And I believe that he's not getting the kind of help that he needs. And he's not the only one. He's not the only one in the veteran community who needs to be, whose needs need to be taken seriously. And I don't think there are enough veterans in this country whose needs are being taken seriously. There, are, I think there are people in places who believe that they are doing the best that they can, but the best that they can is founded in something that does not, um, it's founded in something that has nothing to do with the, pers- the person or the veteran that they are trying to treat. So that is the primary reason why I felt compelled to share this story. As far-fetched as the details might sound, I believe that there is something there that needs to be taken away from Robert Simmons's story. And it could be the truth. All of it could be true. I, you know, who knows? Who knows? We are, we're only getting one side of the story. And I believe I made that point clear um, all throughout the interview. I was, I tried to be as much of a skeptic as, as I could. I tried to ask lots of questions. And I believe that I, I, I personally believe that I did a good job of that. All that being said, I still believe that Mr. Simmons need, still needs to be heard and he still needs to be taken seriously. So somebody out there who may be listening to this or watching this on YouTube, maybe you can get in touch with him and, and offer some help. Offer your professional help if you, if you can. I'm not a reporter. I'm not a journalist. I'm just someone who's trying to share the stories of, of other veterans, their experiences, their challenges, and hopefully getting them... Uh, hopefully getting those stories out into the world will end up helping them or help somebody else uh, along the way. So thank you, Mr. Robert Simmons for reaching out. I hope um, this helps you in some way, shape or form. I hope your story helps someone else who might be out there. Um, But thank you. Nonetheless, I hope I was able to help. This has been the veterans lounge podcast. I am the, I am your host, Miguel Mata. If you liked this episode, do not forget to like, subscribe, and share this episode, especially if you're watching on YouTube, right? Like, subscribe, and share. Don't forget to comment. Always looking for feedback and constructive criticism. But as I always say, if you're someone who's got to be negative and somebody who's got to be say something negative, whatever, whatever, I'm a, I'm a big boy. I can, I can take it. If you're listening in to this in podcast form, Please subscribe and share it there as well. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family members who um, are veterans. Encourage them to get in touch with me and share their story if they have one. And guess what? Newsflash, every veteran has a story. Everyone has a story, period, but especially our veterans. They all have stories to tell, and we all have something that we we can learn from them. You folks, take take care. Take it easy. Sorry it took so long to get this episode out. God bless. If you would like to be a guest on the Veterans Lounge podcast, go to veteransnexus.org slash podcast to learn how. The Veterans Lounge podcast is a project produced in association with the Veterans Nexus Foundation, where they put veterans first and provide opportunities for vets to meet their higher education goals and also find employment as they transition back into civilian life. If you'd like to learn more about Veterans Nexus, visit veteransnexus.org. 
www.thepeopleshouse.org.